<clears throat> this is day three of this April 2021 five-day online session. Mostly online, not entirely. We still have people <clears throat> sitting here uh, at Arnold Park and Chapin Mill. I think it's uh, about a dozen so. And we'll uh, read one more story from uh, the book we've been reading from so far, this session called The Practice of Zen by C.C. Chang. And uh, this is uh, another of these Sung Dynasty masters. Uh, again, it doesn't give the date, but uh, that means Sung means 1100, 1200, 1300. And this says, is Zen Master Kao Feng. And this is, these are his own words. To understand this matter requires great determination and earnestness. For as soon as you have them, the real doubt sensation will arise. At times you will doubt this and doubt that meaning question, in this case, again, this is the questioning mind, the wondering mind. You will doubt this and doubt that. The doubt automatically and instinctively arising by itself. From dawn to dusk, it sticks to you from your head to your feet. This is a very uh, advanced state of working on a, on a koan, is to have it that strong, uh, without uh, really working to keep it in the mind. It becomes one whole continuous piece which will not be dislodged, no matter how hard you attempt to shake it. Even though you try to push it away, it will still persist in sticking to you. At all times, it manifests itself clearly before you. Let me just pause and say that uh, when I was hearing Roshi Kaplow read this very same story a long, long time ago, uh, it seemed so remote. This, this, this absorption in the in the koan, this level of of uh, perplexity coming up uh, effortlessly. It's sticking to me rather than my trying to get hold of it. But it doesn't mean that in a day later we could find ourselves in that very state, even though it seems remote on day one. On day two, it could be all over us. So don't be discouraged when you hear this kind of thing. It can, uh, it can turn in no time where the, the, the koan, the, the doubt, the questioning, can suddenly uh, get a grip on us. Now this is when you can progress. On reaching this stage, one should keep his mind straight and refrain from having secondary thoughts. Secondary thoughts, okay. Thoughts about one's practice. Thoughts about oneself doing one's prog one's practice, 
thoughts about progress or regress. This is the, the enemy of uh, real absorption in the koan or, or the breath. It doesn't matter. It's, it's, it's uh, what keeps us from really losing ourselves in the practice we're working on. And it's important as we go on to be able to identify and notice when we're thinking about, thinking in terms of my practice, my concentration, or in terms of how much longer, or how, how, much, how far I've come or not come. This is so deeply ingrained in us to, to think about practice in terms of mine and I. It's like a, it's so reflexive this self-referential mind. But it can be uprooted. It can be seen through, through great determination in practice. It seems, may seem for years, that it's just bottomless. How can we ever get beyond this self-referential mind? But you can. May it may then later uh, continue to assert itself, but to to get to have um, a period we're free of it. It could be an hour. It could be ten minutes. It could be one minute. That's where awakening can occur. Even though it will continue to revisit us after awakening. so important when you when you hear of these descriptions such as this this master and the ones from yesterday and the day before not not succumb to the idea that oh this is such an exalted state uh, how could I uh, just a, a mere practitioner how could I ever hope to uh, reach such depths of concentration you can you can but not as long as you're thinking about whether you can do it or not. Again, on reaching the stage, one should keep her mind straight and refrain from having secondary thoughts. When one finds herself not knowing that he is walking, she while not knowing that she is walking while walking, or sitting while sitting and unconscious of cold, heat, hunger, then she is about to reach home. Again, now this is, the I think, the third, at least the third of these stories, this Sashin, where we hear this description of uh, not knowing that you're walking while walking or sitting while sitting. And again, uh, the 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 distinction between that and a state of mindfulness. We don't want to think about such distinctions. It's just that uh, when you hear about this 
uh, walking, not knowing you're walking and not knowing you're sitting, not knowing you're drinking tea. Uh, it can be confused with a state of, uh, of ignorance or mindlessness, but it's a, it's a certain stage of samadhi, which is the precondition for awakening. And, and also, uh, the state that he's referring to doesn't have to last long. You don't have to be in this for hours in order to uh, see into the nature of reality. It can all be very brief. I don't remember having uh, any long stretch of time when I was in that kind of state for awakening. The best thing, again, to put it a different way, is to not fall prey to this measuring mind, measuring where we are. Henceforth, he will be able to catch up and hold on. He does not have to do anything, but wait until the time comes. Yeah, this is another pregnant statement. We don't have to do anything. We just have to be one with the practice we're working on. That's it. And then patience, perseverance. We don't have to come up with a, a, a some new gimmick that we think will bring results. It's okay to sometimes experiment a little bit with the way you're approaching the practice in subtle ways, but uh, not think that it you're doing something wrong. But he goes on, but do not let this remark influence you to wait idly nor excite you to exert yourself, striving for such a state with anxious mind. Nor should you just let go and give up. Rather, you should preserve your mindfulness, keeping it steady until you reach enlightenment. Again, the mindfulness component is noticing when the mind is, has wandered. We need them both. We need the no-mindedness and the mindfulness. The mindfulness leads to no-mindedness, complete absorption. And then he goes into uh, some warning here. At times you will encounter 84,000 soldier demons waiting their chance before the gate of your six organs. Uh, the six organs, eye, ear, nose, tongue, uh, skin maybe, and uh, brain. The six senses. The projections of your mind will appear before you in the guise of good or bad, pleasant or unpleasant, strange or astonishing visions. 
anyone who's done much sitting, even outside Sashin, will recognize and these this will be familiar kinds of things that we project the slightest clinging to these things will entrap you into enslavement to their commands and directions uh, just back to this re reference to 84,000 soldier demons waiting their chance before the gate of your six senses again vivid um, metaphorical language, uh, meaning the the hazards of getting attached to sounds and sights and tastes and smells and feelings and thoughts. And, and back to his reference to the, these projections of your mind that will appear before you. And this could also be seen uh, literally, uh, understood literally as hallucinations. Uh, but uh, they don't have to be. They're uh, ideas also, notions of good and bad, judgments, likes and dislikes. At such a time, you should refrain from stirring up your mind and should make yourself like a living corpse. In other words, not reacting. We see these things as they appear before us and pay no attention to them. We notice them, but we don't engage with them. Then, as you hold on and on, suddenly and abruptly, you will feel as though you are being crushed to pieces. You will then reach a state which will frighten the heavens and shake the earth. As, as though you were being crushed to pieces. It is as though this ego idea is being crushed to pieces. Good riddance. What freedom. Frighten the heavens and shake the earth because we realize that we are the heavens, we are the earth itself. And then he <clears throat> starts in on his, his life story. I was ordained at the age of 20, staying at such and such monastery. I vowed to realize Zen within three years. First, I worked under Master Tuan Chao. He taught me to work on the koan, Where Was I Before Birth?, and where will I be after death? And then in, in brackets, the translator has, 
I followed his instructions and practiced, but could not concentrate my mind because of the bifurcation in this very koan. So the, the, the split being before birth and after death. Um, I don't know anyone who's ever taken up that question as a koan, maybe for that reason. Uh, breakthrough koans are, are uh, above all, simple. They're simple. What is Mu? What am I? What is this? And he says, my mind was also scattered. So he's he's not just blaming it on the the construction, the verbal construction, but owning up to how scattered he was. Later, I saw Master Shui Yen. His uh, story was one that we read yesterday, or the day before. He taught me to work on the Mu. He also asked me to report to him each day. He explained that this was like setting out on a journey and that one should find out every day what progress one had made. Now this is interesting what he says here. Because his explanations were so systematic and understandable, I became so dependent on him that I did not make any effort in my own work. This is very interesting. Roshi Kaplow used to um, pass on to us that uh, they have this saying in Japanese Zen, never explain. Well, I came to the conviction that with Westerners, it is sometimes best to explain, especially in practical instructions on how to work uh, on whatever one's practice is. It's just a different orientation. But I do recognize the danger of over-explaining. Over and this is this this is what he's referring to here. It's uh, it's sort of the other end of the spectrum, of uh, just saying, okay, here's your koan, moo, good luck. Which I understand was a common thing. They would just give you a koan without any instructions. I think I tend to err on the side of, of, of explaining too much, answering too many questions as best I can out of the, the wish to help the student get into it more. Again, be, because of those explanations, he says, I did not make any effort in my own work. One day, when I just had just entered 
the Doksan room, he said to me, Who has dragged this corpse here for you? He had hardly finished the sentence when he chased me out of his room. Later, I followed the example of Chin Chan and stayed in the meditation hall. Yeah, so when to, when, 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 you have the chance to go to Doksan, when do you go and when do you just stay hunkered down and keep sitting, whether it's physically in a zendo or uh, in an online session, staying, sitting at home. It's a question I've been asked so many times and here, here I do uh, avoid, I think, um, trying to spell it out to the person because I can't. It's, it's up to each student to learn. And that's what it is. It's a, it's a learning experience where you, you learn. Well, this is what I say is uh, no one needs to go to every doksan that they, that's open to them. Uh, but at the same time, you don't have to have a reason to come to Doksan. If you have a question, sure, bring it to Doksan. If you have a problem, something that's becoming a, an obstacle, and you want to report that, sure. But you don't need those things to come to Doksan. You just check in. Because even though you may have nothing in particular, no question, no problem, when you land in the Doksan room, whether it's virtual or actual, uh, I may have something. I may have a question. I can't ask my question uh, if you're sitting in the Zendo. I'm not going to come up and whisper in your ear, how's it going? Or uh, where are you at with this? But at the same time, don't think that there's anything I can give you in Doksan that you don't already have. You've got it all. Boundless wisdom, bottomless wisdom. It's not one thing a teacher has that's of any essential value that the student doesn't already have, equally have. So again, he says, uh, so later I stayed in the meditation hall. One day in a dream, I suddenly remembered the koan, all things return to the one, but what is the one return to? At that moment, a doubt sensation abruptly rose within me so that I did not know east from west or north from south. Yeah, this is this is a good one. This is actually a koan in the I think in the Blue Cliff record. All things can be reduced to the one. What is the one? So it doesn't take a spiritual, a, a theologian to see that it's basically the question: 
If God created everything, what created God? It is a koan. And this is one that grabbed him. So that I did not know east from west or north from south. In other words, it short-circuited this discursive mind. This mind that divides, that discriminates. That's exactly when a koan is doing its job fully. We just kind of short out that mind and we're left, we're lost, we're lost. What, whatever koan one is working on, this is the state you can reach, that you want to reach, not knowing. He continues, during the sixth day in this state, that's a long time to be lost. While I was chanting with the other monks, I lifted my head and saw the last two sentences of the verse composed by the fifth ancestor, Fayen. And then this is the verse. Oh, it is you, the one I have known all the time, who goes and returns in the 30,000 days of 100 years. I don't know where that verse is, but there is a there is a another koan. Uh, this is in the Mumonkan. Um, Shakyamuni and Maitreya are both servants of another who is that other. Ah, it is you, the one I have known all the time. He then reports that this question that his teacher had posed, uh, who has dragged this corpse here for you when he chased him out of the room, he said immediately, I broke up that sentence that had stuck in his mind uh, since the master chased him out of the room. I felt as if my spirit had been extinguished and my mind blown away and then revived again from death itself. It was like dropping the burden of a carrying pole weighing 20 pounds. Ah. This is a real, true enlightenment. There's a, there's a haiku that goes, I think, like this. Ah, the whinny of a pack horse unloaded of everything.
I was then 24 years old and so had achieved my original wish to realize this matter within three years. This uh, description, being unburdened, finding release. Uh, there's another one, conveys much the same thing. Um, this is this is truly deep, deep enlightenment. Uh, it's from uh, it's from the koan collection called the Transmission of Light, the Denko Roku. And here's how it goes. The wisteria has withered, trees have fallen down, mountains have crumbled level with the plains, flooding cascades have overflowed their banks, fire flashes forth from the flint boulders. This is not hyperbole. And then he continues, afterwards I was asked, can you master yourself in the bright daytime? I answered, yes I can. Can you master yourself when dreaming? Again my answer, yes I can. Where in dreams, dreamless sleep is the master? To this question I had no answer or explanation. The master said to me, from now on, I do not want you to study the Dharma or learn the Dharma, nor to study anything, old or new. I just want you to eat when you are hungry and to sleep when you are tired. As soon as you wake from sleep, alert your mind and ask yourself, who is the very master of this awakening? And where does he rest his body and lead his life? So he had what it seems was uh, certainly Kensho awakening, but uh, as is always the case, still further to go. He says, then I made up my mind that I would understand this thing in one way or another, even though it meant that I should appear to be an idiot for the rest of my life. Five years passed. One day, when I was questioning this matter while sleeping, my brother monk, who slept beside me in the dormitory, pushed his pillow so that it fell with a heavy thump to the floor. At that moment, my doubts were suddenly shattered. I felt as if I had jumped out of a trap. All the puzzling koans of the masters and the Buddhas and all the different issues and events of both present and ancient times became transparently clear to me. Hereafter, all things were settled. Nothing under the sun remained but peace.
think that this kind of experience is something beyond you. Just don't think. If you find some inspiration from it, use it to mobilize your, your efforts. The worst thing is to compare where you are now with the state he reached. It's not fair. Uh, he probably spent years uh, struggling himself. In the time remaining this morning, I'm going to turn to a different text. This is a book called Zen Dawn, um, and it's a it's a series of early Zen texts from the Dung Wang Caves. Uh, the Dung Wang Caves are in the northwest uh, corner of China uh, in the uh, 20th century. Uh, these were discovered in, in these caves in the desert um, were thousands of scrolls, manuscripts, sutras, other documents, as well as Buddha figures that have been preserved in the arid climate of the desert since the 7th or 8th centuries. I would say it was really the highlight of of my uh, second pilgrimage to China was uh, visiting this place. At that time, 35 years ago, uh, it was we pretty much my companions and I pretty much had it to ourselves. It was it was almost deserted, and we just could roam from cave to cave. The the sutras, all those thousands of manuscripts had been removed and uh, and sh taken by camel uh, across the Gobi Desert and then on to the British Museum. Uh, but the the figures, the Buddha and Bodhisattva figures were still, were still, were still there. And, uh, and this book uh, is a translation of those very early uh, texts that were, were removed. And uh, you would think that it would belong, in the earliest Zen text, that it would begin with the words of Bodhidharma, the founder of Zen, but it doesn't. It has one before that. It has Bodhidharma, teachings of Bodhidharma, our, the founder, but there, it includes one before that, um, and the, the name is uh, Gunabhadra of the Song period, not the Sung. The Sung, S-U-N-G, is uh, where these other Chinese masters lived, when they lived, the ones I've been reading, whose stories I've been reading. This is the Song, S-O-N-G, which was uh, back in the in the 5th century, some seven, 700 years earlier still. So I'm just going to start on this, only 
have five or ten minutes. Um, but uh, here's how it starts. So this, this first of these early masters, the earliest of masters, right before Bodhidharma was Gunabhadra. It says Gunabhadra Tripitaka was a man of South India, same as Bodhidharma. Bodhidharma is said to have been from southern India. When he studied the great vehicle, he called he was called Mahayana. Well the great vehicle is a translation of the word Mahayana. Maha means great, Yana means vehicle. Zen is a part of the Mahayana. But apparently he himself was called Mahayana. That'd be a tough name to live up to. During uh, the years 424 to 454, he came by ship to Guangzhou. Guangzhou is this port on the southernmost uh, border of, of uh, China. It's where you go, I think, it's where uh, you go back and forth to Hong Kong, go through Guangzhou. Emperor Daizu of the Song received him. He translated the Lankavatara Sutra. Hmm. I've always read that uh, the Lankavatara Sutra was Bodhidharma's favorite sutra. So, maybe so. Uh, maybe this master who preceded Bodhidharma translated the Lankavatara Sutra. Princes, nobles, monks, and laymen invited him to give instructions on meditation. But Gunabhadra was embarrassed and declined because he did not speak Chinese well. That night he dreamed that a man took off his head with a sword. Thenceforth he began to give lessons on meditation. I never, uh, I never got far enough in my Spanish or my German to when I was going to uh, Mexico and Germany uh, to give Taishos and uh, even attempt Taishos in those languages. I, I, in Spanish, I was able to give Doksan to those whose um, English was worse than my Spanish. Um, but, uh, well, who can't relate to the awkwardness of trying to express uh, clearly express what could be quite uh, subtle teachings in a f f language you haven't mastered. But somehow, Gunabhadra, that dream made all the difference and he said, let's go for it. Uh, trusting that the listeners would be able to discern the spirit behind the words, which is, after all, is what really counts in Zen. Gunabhadra said, this country, referring to China, he'd just gotten to China, this country is located in the east and lacks methods of practice. Since they lack such methods, some fall into the teachings of the lesser vehicle and the two vehicles, some fall into the teachings of the 95 kinds of outside paths. Some fall into demonic meditation in order to view all things and find out the good and bad deeds of other people. 
uh, the teachings of the so-called lesser vehicle Hinayana. Uh, it, it in old old prejudice Buddhism, they distinguish between the the Mahayana, the great vehicle, and the Hinayana, so-called lesser vehicle. Now you don't use Hinayana; it's 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 a pejorative phrase. It uh, probably they were referring to the other great stream of Buddhism uh, in Southeast Asia, now called the Theravada, the teaching of the elders, the original early teaching of the Buddha. Um, without trying to define all these things, let's just take this warning of his about not falling into demonic meditation in order to view all things and find out the good and bad deeds of other people. Okay, apparently some form of meditation where you get to spy on other people. Don't know anything about that. But he clearly, it must have been something uh, current at that time, whether they really could do such a thing, maybe. I would never doubt the power of the human mind to do remarkable things. Uh, but what a misuse of the mind to, to watch other people behind walls. And and he says, how bitter, what a great misfortune. They entrap themselves and entrap others. I feel sorry for these types who fall for long ages into demonic paths subject to birth and death and do not attain liberation. Some fall into forbidden magical arts, controlling spirits and demons, spying on other people's good and bad deeds. They falsely say, I sit in meditation and practice contemplation. Ordinary people are blind and deluded and do not understand and think that such magicians have indeed realized the path of the sages and then submit to them. They do not know that these are perverse, demonic methods. There's a saying in Zen, it's the job of a teacher to not only reveal the truth, but to expose the false. And yes, all of these superstitious practices trying to develop and display paranormal powers, this, from a Zen perspective, is a, is a misuse. It's such a, such a settling for what could be possible, settling for what falls so short of the possibility of the human mind, the use of the mind. This is a, a theme in Zen that uh, recurs, has recurred over the centuries, is this warning about getting caught in uh, states of superstitious states and these psychic powers. Not, not denying that we can develop such powers, but they're not liberation. 
liberation from self and other, from us and them. In fact, they they can all too often become a source of pride, of egotism. Look what I can do with with the powers of my mind. It's the, that's the opposite of liberation. It's attachment. He continues, In our land, meaning India, we have the correct teaching, the true Dharma, but it is secret and not openly transmitted. Those who have an affinity with it and whose faculties are fully prepared meet good and wise teachers on the road who bestow it on them. If not for encounters with good and wise teachers, there would be no transmission, no mind-to-mind transmission. I think this would be a good time to uh, stop, so we'll recite the four vows. <laughs> 